Welcome to the 1515, brought to you by the regulatory legal experts at the Maples Group. Here, you will learn more about the latest developments in the regulatory laws of the Cayman Islands on the 15th day of every month. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special edition podcast. My name is Chris Capewell, and I'm a partner and head of the regulatory and financial services team here at Maples in the Cayman Islands office. Joining me today is fellow regulatory partner Patrick Head and Associates Joe Ottaway and Ellen Bryan. Today's podcast, we're going to take a detailed look at CIMA's new rule and statement of guidance on internal controls that comes into effect on 14th of October. We're also going to look at CIMA's rule on corporate governance and then also CIMA's statement of guidance on corporate governance for both mutual funds and private funds. All of these come in on 14th of October. This episode is probably going to extend beyond the 15 minutes. Please note that the contents of this podcast in the normal way do not constitute legal advice and do need to be taken as a general update only. Before we get cracking on the podcast, just a couple of light housekeeping items to cover. If you are listening from your usual podcast app, you'll find any resource documents, including a high-level copy of some slides that we've put together, and also the speaker information will be in the description. And if you've clicked on the media player sent to you via email, you can find all of this information in the notes section. Last, but of course not least, please don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and also Google Podcasts. Let's get started. And Ellen, I guess if you can initially track us through the internal controls, again, they're coming in on 14th October, that'd be great. Yes, Chris, thanks. I think it would be helpful to begin with reminding listeners of the status of CIMA's rules and statement of guidance. A rule is a CIMA directive creating a regulatory obligation, breach of which may lead to a fine or a regulatory action. Whereas a statement of guidance is a recommendation to assist compliance with law or regulation and a measure for CIMA to assess compliance. With that said, what does the new rule seek to achieve? The aim of the rule and statement of guidance on internal controls is to ensure that regulated entities have an internal control system in place to ensure that their business is carried on in an orderly and efficient manner, to safeguard clients' assets, to ensure maintenance of proper records and the reliability of financial, operational and regulatory reports and to ensure compliance with law. Who does this new rule apply to? The rule and statement of guidance applies to all regulated entities, which includes both licensees and registered entities. So therefore, the rule and statement of guidance applies to banks, trust companies, insurance licensees, mutual funds, private funds and CIBA licensees. This includes CIBA registered persons. As a result, many aspects of this rule are necessarily high-level, generic, and non-exhaustive. What's interesting is that CIMA recognizes the application of the rule is flexible, and it may vary depending on the structure, size, nature of business, complexity, and risk profile of the entity's operation. So this is helpful as a regulated entity may adjust their policies to fit their business, so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and the regulated entity will have that flexibility there. SEMA has acknowledged that it is possible to delegate or to rely on the internal control systems of a third-party service provider, provided that the governing body is satisfied and can demonstrate to SEMA that the service provider's internal controls meets Cayman standards. Ellen, just one thing on here I think that we do need to emphasize, this does apply to every regulated entity 
with SEMA for all of our mutual funds, private fund clients, this is definitely something that you need to have a look at. And I guess the, the other really good point that you just made is it's proportionate applications. This is something that you do need to read if you are registered and regulated by SEMA. Thanks, Chris. That was very helpful. So what is contained in the rule and statement of guidance? The rule and statement of guidance is separated into two parts. Part one sets out the five key components of internal control. And part two sets out sector-specific rules and guidance, which currently only applies to fiduciary services. This will include trust companies, company managers, and corporate service providers, and securities investment business. So if part two is applicable to your entity, do be sure to read that. The five key components of an internal control framework should address your control environment, risk identification and assessment, control activities and segregation of duties, information and communication, and monitoring activities and correcting deficiencies. So I'm just going to briefly touch upon each one in turn. So the first being control environment. What is this? The control environment refers to the set of standards, processes, and structures that provide a basis for carrying out effective internal controls across the organization. The governing body and senior management established the tone at the top regarding the importance of internal controls and expected standards of control. And this is important as the tone at the top sets the bar. So the regulated entity must establish and document its organizational structure, including the appropriate functions, lines of reporting, responsibility, authority, and accountability. Your control environment should encompass the three lines of defense model. What's this include? So your first line of defense is your management on the front line. They provide the first line of defense in the day-to-day activities. Secondly, you should have your business enabling functions such as legal and compliance, and they will provide the second line of defense as they clarify internal control requirements and evaluate adherence to defined standards. And then thirdly, you have your internal auditors and they will provide the third line of defense in assessing and reporting on internal control. And if necessary, recommending any corrective actions or enhancement that management should consider and implement. So regulated entities are required to demonstrate a commitment to integrity and ethical values. And this really speaks to the culture within the entity and the responsibility on the governing body or senior management to promote high ethical and integrity standards. And it goes back to what I said earlier about setting that tone at the top and the importance of that. Yeah, I think there's a really good summary, Alan, that you've just described there of all of the rules. And I know that we were all sort of at a recent industry event and the authority did make clear that really they're focused on that setting the tone at the top. I think that that obviously is more relevant where you have a regulated entity, a licensee that has a tangible functional business and has sort of operating staff and potentially senior management in place. And then, of course, there's always the broad industry question, well, how does that then apply to just, say, the investment fund sector of industry in Cayman, which, as we know, you know, really does look at outsourcing all of its operational and sort of control aspects, given that those vehicles are not staff. SEMA made the helpful distinction and, and really did emphasize that flexibility within their rules that, you know, these rules are written to cover what is quite a vast and sort of dynamic financial services industry within the jurisdiction. And so that each regulated entity needs to consider how these rules apply in a common sense and commercial manner 
to their business. And I think a key takeaway that struck me was that, you know, everybody needs to understand the rules do apply to every entity. But Seema made the point that if they don't fit with your business, that you then need to obviously document why that is. So they're not asking every entity to strictly comply with every rule, but you must obviously document and record why a particular rule doesn't fit the scope of your business. And I think that outsourcing and relying on either third-party service providers, you could, it does include an affiliate entity and kind of looking at their internal control measures and just ensuring that those are obviously, you know, appropriate for a business, but recording and documenting that that is what you're doing so that everybody has clarity on how the business is functioning and operating and that you can demonstrate that to the authority. In my mind, that sort of leads to the question in terms of in meeting these requirements and meeting these standards that the authority's setting. I mean, how do you assess whether that is appropriate or not? And, and I guess the driving question there really, Alan, is, is does an entity need to actually undertake a risk assessment? And if so, what's the appropriate timing for undertaking that assessment in order to sort of measure itself against these rules? Yes, thanks, Pat. In answer to your question on whether uh, does a regulated entity need to undertake a risk assessment, the answer is yes, that a regulated entity may outsource some or all of its business functions to an outsource service provider. And that outsource service provider should have their own internal controls in place. But the regulated entity itself ought to undertake its own risk assessment at the outset. What does a risk assessment involve? Well, it involves the process of identifying, measuring and analysing the risks to achieving an organisation's objectives. And it also forms the basis for determining how those risks will be managed and putting those proper policies and procedures in place to manage any of those identifiable risks. So the next point that I'll touch on is control activities and segregation of duties. An entity must select and develop control activities, and this will include control activities over technology that contribute to the mitigation of risk to the achievement of objectives to acceptable levels. So the control activities are deployed through policies that establish what is expected and the procedures that put those policies into action. Some examples of effective control systems should include top-level reviews, should include physical controls for restricting access to tangible assets, so for example, cash and securities, checking for compliance with established exposure limits, and addressing non-compliance. A regulated entity must ensure adequate segregation of duties commensurate with the size, complexity, structure, nature of business, and risk profile of its operations. And helpfully here again, that we see this flexibility part coming into play. So if this is impractical, the entity should establish and implement appropriate alternative control activities. Um, so again, there's that scope there for flexibility and adjusting the policies to fit your business needs. So next we'll look at information and communication and a regulated entity must obtain, generate, use relevant and quality information from appropriate sources to support effective functioning of internal controls. So an entity must have an effective internal communication channels for communicating information on objectives and responsibilities necessary to support the proper functioning of internal controls. And lastly, we'll look at monitoring activities and correcting deficiencies. So an entity must establish and implement appropriate processes for monitoring effectiveness of internal controls. 
And of course, these reviews should be adequately documented and reported on a timely basis to the appropriate level of management. The internal audit of internal controls should be periodically carried out by independent skilled staff and any results or deficiencies should be reported directly to the governing body in a timely manner for corrective action to take place. A regulated entity, of course, should have adequate procedures for receiving, recording, investigating, monitoring and resolving client complaints. Thanks, Ellen. That was comprehensive and a, a good summary. So what are we saying on internal controls? Is there a requirement now to have an internal controls policy? Thanks, Chris. The rule doesn't specifically say that you need to put in place an internal controls policy. We have received different requests from different clients depending on the nature of their business and their needs in the sense that you'll take the approach, this holistic approach and look at what the needs are for your regulated entity and to document those policies and procedures in place so that if you are ever inspected that you can point to those policies and that you have those in place. Thanks, Ellen. To the extent that you do have any existing policies, I guess, for an affiliated entity, then then you're able to bolt onto those as well, assuming that you've documented that that's the approach you're taking. Is that correct? That's that's correct, Chris. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Pat, probably given your funds background on this, takeaway for me, I, I guess, is how is all this going to apply to our private funds and mutual funds, most of which are unstaffed? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and one that industry and listeners kind of want to drill down on. You know, again, sort of harking back to this flexibility point and looking at the sort of commercial realities of how investment funds operate in the islands and, and the fact that they have their operators, but really then do not have staff, they don't have senior management, and they're looking to outsource a lot of the, the functionality. I mean, I think in, in that context, the overlap, if you will, on sort of an event diagram really of, of the intersection for internal controls and with the corporate governance rule and framework that I know we're about to sort of move on to, I think comes back to the sort of amorphous concept of, you know, you need to be able to walk the talk. You need to look at whether you do have documented policies and procedures in place to, and whether that can be, I think, for internal controls, can be baked into and part of your corporate governance framework document where there is obviously a hard requirement to have a documented policy. So in a fund context, I think you can sort of address a lot of these what are functionally, I think, risk points and risk mitigation measures under the internal controls rules within that policy. It's a case of, you know, once you have that policy in place, it's the actual implementation of that policy, ensuring that, you know, if, if you adopt a policy, then you must follow it. It's then, I think, a third leg of, of monitoring that policy, monitoring outsourced service providers, which, as we said, sort of includes both affiliates and third parties to ensure that they are undertaking the outsourced service lines that you've given to them, that they're operating in compliance with the agreed terms, that it's meeting the requirements for the fund. It's then, I think, coming back to your original risk assessment that we discussed, and I think a fund that sort of launch, you know, would look at this framework, would look at the risks that it faces, which predominantly are going to be from its, its outsourced service providers, understanding what that risk is in then circling back to that at the end of the year and going, having a very well, I think, and documented, minuted meeting that kind of reassesses everything we've just talked about. It's looking at the risk assessment for the fund again. It's looking at the policies and procedures that you've put in place. It's ensuring that you've monitored those throughout the course of the year. It's addressing any potential deficiencies or other issues that may may have arisen. And then really, you know, back to your point, Alan, about how do you demonstrate this? Again, it is through the documentation. So I think this is where having, as I mentioned, 
recommend a very comprehensive set of board minutes is, is critical because I think that is what then ties together this entire amorphous sort of concept of how do you apply internal controls to a fund that's outsourced everything. And I think that is really the answer. It's each of those limbs all brought together by the board conducting its annual review and assessment and then documenting the outcomes. It makes sense. Thanks. I agree with all of that. And it brings us on nicely to Joe and the corporate governance is that a key component of the internal controls is going to be embedded and part of the corporate governance. So Joe, do you want to crack on and, and tell us about the new rules and revised SOG on corporate governance? Absolutely. The new rule on corporate governance applies to all regulated entities. So that includes regulated mutual and private funds. In addition to the new rule, there are two standalone statements of guidance on corporate governance. First, there's an existing statement of guidance that listeners might be aware of, which applies to all regulated entities other than regulated funds. And this statement of guidance has been in place since 2016, and it has not been revised. Secondly, there's a specific statement of guidance on corporate governance for regulated mutual funds and private funds. Now, this statement of guidance is also not new. The previous statement of guidance on corporate governance for regulated mutual funds has been in place for almost 10 years. However, it has now been revised and the primary change has been the inclusion of regulated private funds. Now, in terms of the effective date, as Chris has already mentioned, the rule on corporate governance comes into effect on the 14th of October this year, but the statement of guidance is technically in effect now as it commenced on the 14th of April this year. So what does the rule require? The rule on corporate governance requires a regulated entity to establish, implement, and maintain a corporate governance framework which addresses the minimum requirements which are set out in the rule. Now, helpfully, SEMA specifically acknowledges that it's possible to delegate to or rely on the corporate governance framework of a third-party service provider or an affiliate, provided that the governing body is satisfied and can demonstrate to SEMA that the service provider's corporate governance framework meets Cayman standards. Accordingly, if your entity intends to rely on the corporate governance arrangements of a third party, we would recommend that a gap analysis be undertaken to make sure that those arrangements are fit for purpose and they meet Cayman standards. Now, the gap analysis could either be undertaken in-house or the regulatory team here at Maples would be very happy to assist. I also think it's important to note that because the rule on corporate governance applies to SEMA's entire regulated population, SEMA has specifically acknowledged that the application of the rule is flexible. As Ella mentioned, it's not one size fits all. And helpfully, there's a particular rule, Rule 6.2, which states that if a regulated entity is of the view that a particular rule or the application of the rule is not applicable to the entity based on its profile, and by profile I mean its size, its complexity, its structure, its nature of business and the risk profile of its operations, the rule can be disapplied or effectively turned off, provided that the entity is able to comprehensively demonstrate to SEMA that the rule does not apply. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I think that's a really good point that you just make there. And I think that this is a point that was emphasized by SEMA you know, recently in sort of um, industry event, where if a rule doesn't fit for a particular entity, you just need to be able to demonstrate. I think the way you demonstrate something is by recording, documenting, recording in a meeting minute why a particular rule doesn't fit. It's not that the rules don't apply. You know, they obviously do. The rules are the rules. They do apply to all entities. But it's a case of you know being commercial and appropriate for your entity and going, okay, this doesn't work 
or fit for these reasons and just setting out why that is. So I think that that's a quite a you know, very common sense and helpful commercial approach. And as you rightly mentioned, you know, SEMA have been tasked with the job to write a set of rules that covers you know, what is a very diverse and broad financial services industry within the jurisdiction. Yeah, that's exactly right, Pat. So I think the key here would be to make sure that you document somewhere your reasoning as to why a particular rule wouldn't apply. So that if SEMA ever undertook an inspection, you could justify the approach that you've taken. Now, I don't have time to cover all the requirements of the rule on corporate governance in any detail today, but I did want to tease out a couple of themes and highlight one of the new collective duties of the governing body. So the first point that I wanted to make is the need for documentation, which I know we've already been stressing quite a bit today. When you read through the rule on corporate governance and the statement of guidance, you will notice a lot of requirements for documentation. So for example, objectives and strategies need to be documented in writing. The conflicts of interest policy needs to be documented and regulated entities need to document the roles and responsibilities of the governing body, senior management, and also persons in control functions. This doesn't necessarily mean that you need to put in place brand new standalone policies if you already have documentation in place addressing those matters. For example, in an investment fund context, conflicts of interest will most likely already be addressed in the offering memorandum or the constitutional documents of the fund, and so nothing further is necessarily required. But to the extent that the regulated entity has nothing in place, then uh, you'll need to put some documentation in place. Jonah, I completely agree with that. Seema's made it pretty clear that documentation is key here. To the extent something isn't documented, that then you know the, the view generally is that it didn't happen. The trick for us as regulatory and financial services advisors is to ensure that we don't become too document heavy, particularly on agendas, minutes, and that it just becomes blown out of proportion. You need to document it. It needs to be documented properly, and it needs to be relevant and appropriate to your business. A key takeaway, I know we've all just mentioned it, is documentation, documentation. Yes, that's right. So the next point that I wanted to make is that under the new rule, the governing body must hold at least one annual meeting. We're sure that our clients are already doing that, but the requirement is to um, make sure that you circulate an agenda ahead of the meeting and keep detailed minutes. So again, it's all about documentation here. The next point that I wanted to touch on is about delegation. So the rule on corporate governance covers a range of different types of delegation. There's outsourcing, the use of subcommittees, and also internal delegation to senior management. As regards outsourcing, the rule permits functions of the governing body to be outsourced, providing that the governing body has mechanisms in place for documenting the delegation and monitoring the outsourced functions. The rule also makes it very clear that the governing body cannot abrogate responsibilities for those outsourced functions. As regards subcommittees, the rule also specifically permits the use of subcommittees to carry out delegated functions of the governing body. But you need to be aware that where a subcommittee is to be used, it must have a documented charter of terms of reference. It also needs to maintain appropriate records and then it needs to report back to the governing body. Lastly, as regards senior management, when the governing body delegates matters to the senior management, the governing body should ensure that appropriate policies and procedures are in place to ensure that senior management is accountable to the governing body, that senior management provides the governing body with adequate and timely information to enable the governing body to carry out their oversight functions, which would include monitoring the performance of both the regulated entity and those senior management. The last point that I wanted to mention is that the rule on corporate governance imposes a new duty on the governing body to notify SEMA by email within 10 days of any substantive material issues. So a key question here will, of course, be how SEMA will interpret a substantive material issue. 
Yeah, that's a good point, Joe. I had a discussion with Seema just on this point. There was a little bit of tension, particularly for in the investment fund position where there's the strict requirement under the Act to notify Seema of material changes to a fund vehicle within 21 days. And then what, how does that work in the context of this new particular rule? My takeaway is that what we're talking about here with this 10-day requirement is more kind of systemic jurisdictional reputational issues and concerns, you know, external events that may impact a particular regulated entity, you know, not just funds, but any any regulated entity in the sector that may also be impacting other regulated entities within the sector. And, and something, frankly, that SEMA needs to know about and know about quickly. So good examples would be the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, something like that, where your entity may be banking with them, that occurs, you know about it. It could be happening to other people as well. Those are the types of events that SEMA would like to be told about within this 10-day period, because those are points that as a jurisdiction and as a regulator, you know, SEMA needs to get ahead of so that we can react quickly and appropriately to safeguard the jurisdiction. I think that is the key distinction between the 21-day rule where you have your updated offering documentation or something else has changed in a more mechanical procedural sense. You know, that is what you notify within the 21 days. So it hopefully helps clarify that point for a lot of the listeners. That's a really helpful insight, Pat. So essentially any issue that could have a substantive negative impact on the regulated entity would be caught by this new obligation. So finally, I wanted to quickly mention the revised statement of guidance on corporate governance for mutual and private funds. As I mentioned before, the primary change to the statement of guidance is the inclusion of regulated private funds, but the obligations that have applied to mutual funds since 2013 remain largely unchanged. You will recall that I mentioned that the rule on corporate governance is flexible and may vary depending on the fund's profile. And as I mentioned, by that I mean its structure, size, nature, complexity, and risk profile. Helpfully, the Statement of Guidance on Corporate Governance for Regulated Funds states that in a funds context, the factors determining the fund's profile could include, but are not limited to, its assets under management, the number of investors that it has, the complexity of the structure, the nature of the investment strategy or the nature of its operations. So, for example, if a fund is in the liquidation phase, while the rule on corporate governance would, of course, still apply, I think it would be justifiable to take this into account in determining the extent to which the rule would apply to that fund. So, to sum up, we don't expect the new measures to have a material impact on the operations of regulated entities. However, SEMA will expect documentation to be put in place and for there to be at least one meeting of the governing body per year. Great. Thanks, Joe. Pat, similar to what I asked on internal controls, uh, what does all this mean for mutual funds and private funds? Uh, I know Joe's been through it in a fair amount of detail, but if you could just summarize a few key bullet points for our listeners to take away. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I think my takeaway for this is that in terms of sort of, you know, the must-haves documentation-wise for an investment fund, it's a case of on launch ensuring that you have a corporate governance framework that is appropriate and documented in place, whether that's just an overarching policy that also may incorporate some of those internal control rules, or at least being able to identify in the rest of the funds, offering documentation, et cetera, and constitutional documents that you've touched upon each of these requirements of the rule. I think it's a case of also having a risk assessment. Again, that could simply be a recorded discussion in a minuted meeting format, or it could, again, be a formalized documented risk assessment for the fund. I also think the outsourced service provider agreements need to ensure that they the terms are compliant with the rules. 
there's obviously a need there. I heard for the operators themselves to have sort of a formalized, actual documented disclosure of conflicts of interest piece of paper that needs to be recorded. And then there's obviously the annual requirement for an assessment, you know, an assessment of the operators that could be the director's performance and the performance of the governing body as a whole, sort of circling back to have we met and achieved what we set out to do, the strategies and objectives for the fund at year end. So I think those are the sort of the key documented pieces of paper that you need to have in place, which really holistically leads to being all wrapped up in a nice, neat, recorded set of minutes. You know, so have, having all of that minuted as well, I think would be uh, crucial. Great. Thanks, Pat. And I think we're also just waiting on some clarity from SEMA on a couple of FAQs that got pushed through um, one of the industry associations, particularly with respect to funds. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that those will be very helpful because as we've sort of said here, you know, the rules are drafted for a very wide um, financial services industry and SEMA are doing their best to address some of the more nuanced points that are buried within these rules that we haven't sort of got into a lot of detail on. So we are expecting those FAQs to hopefully come back soon and they will be very helpful and instructive for industry as a whole. Great. So next steps for the listeners, I guess, is if you do have existing corporate governance and also internal control arrangements that you're trying to leverage, that is, of course, an option for you, then we do recommend that you do a gap analysis, have a look at these rules that we've talked about just to ensure that the existing frameworks meet current Cayman standards. If you don't have anything in place, then as Joe, Ellen, and Pat have indicated, documentation is key here. Uh, you need to get the documents in place and you need to follow those documents. We have got significant experience on this. We're fielding a significant amount of client queries currently. So feel free to get in touch with myself, Ellen, or Joe. And I think as Pat may have mentioned, we've sort of been drafting board agendas for a good number of clients now, which assist with the corporate governance framework, trying to do it in the way that comes across sort of commercial, but also adheres to all of the requirements in the rules. So please do get in touch. We will also include some details on our affiliate Maples FS, who have a very, very sizable corporate governance team who can assist with minute taking and basically running meetings in accordance with the requirements of the rule. I did want to thank Ellen. Thanks, Pat. And thanks, Joe. I know this has been a fairly detailed podcast. I think it's a necessary one and, and you guys have done a tremendous amount of work on this. So thank you all for taking the time to record the podcast. Did you have any further questions that you wanted to ask or, or points that you wanted to raise before we close? No, thanks. Well, I think that was a really good summary. All right. You good, Ellen and Joe? Yeah, nothing further thanks, from me. Awesome. Thanks again, everyone. And thank you to our listeners and take care.